Well, hey, how we doing? Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians while you're turning there. Um, can you guys put that picture on the screen of um, what's going on up at uh, Lake Ann Camp? Yeah, just so you guys know, this is a picture. Our students, uh, junior high or middle school and high school are up at Lake Ann and um, be praying for them this weekend. Um, I've got to apologize. I was the one that's been praying for snow. Sorry about that. And um, this should be the last blast, but I'm sure glad that it happened on a week when our kids were up at camp. The reports coming back um, from our leaders up there are um, very, very uh, thankful for your prayers. Um, they're seeing it make impacts in the lives of our student, which is students, which is what we pray for. Just another thing, looking at that picture, uh, it, it's a reminder to me of God's faithfulness. Um, 11, 12 years ago when we started this church, I remember our first youth group. There were um, five high schoolers, and um, Cal was leading it. There was another kid, um, Jen and Lance Michelle, who were part of our core team. Many of you know them. They had a son by the name of Lance. I think he graduated from high school, but we didn't have any ministries for him to go to, so he just kind of hung out. He made six. And as I look at that picture... 200 kids from our church are part of that 500. There's another 120 from um, a church that we planted up in Fremont a couple of years ago. There's about that same amount from Christ Church, which we planted in North Muskegon. So 400 students from our church, the church that we've planted, the other uh, kids that are up there are from two other churches that are kind of in our, our crew. That's um, uh, Redemption Church over by Grand Rapids, and it's also Harvest up in Traverse City. And those are the guys that we talk to, counsel with when we need advice. They're the guys that have had so much of a positive influence on our ministry. So just really, really grateful to see all that God has done. When we were sitting there with um, six kids, um, I would say that we would have never had the expectation for a room like that. And I just think even as we go to this topic of marriage this morning, it's a good reminder that we have a God that uh, often exceeds our expectations, right? So we're going to be talking about marriage today just to give you guys a little bit of, of context. Back when COVID hit, um, my wife kind of approached me and was like, um, "Hun." maybe we should take this time and, and finish that book that we've been talking about writing. And in saying that, we, we were working on a book that we were calling The Marriage Wheel. And when she says we should finish it, what that means is she had all of her chapters done for over a year, but there were other chapters that still needed to be completed. So that was the nudge. And uh, we finished a book during that first year of COVID. Many of you guys are aware of it. We've handed out copies at our church before. We've used it in some of our marital and premarital counseling. And in that book, there's just a very quick illustration. I'm going to ask the guys to put that on the screen of what is meant when we're called to be one flesh. What, what, it's kind of an illustration to help us understand how the roles that God gives to the husband and to the wife well, they're not just random roles or, or things that we're called to do. They fit into a bigger picture. So if you just take a second, as you look at this illustration, think of it as a wheel. And the husband is called to love, to lead, and to learn his wife. Those first two, love and lead, we're going to look at those in our text today in Ephesians. The third one, learn, is actually taken from 1 Peter 3, where it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, because she is a joint heir of grace, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And um, in that verse, what it's saying, it's not that they're physically weaker, it's that they're precious. The, the idea is that they're a fine piece of porcelain or china. There's something to be cherished. There's something to be treated carefully. 
And uh, at the end of that verse, it says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And I would just say to the men in this room, uh, your relationship with your Lord will not prosper unless you're taking care of one of his daughters in a way that he's commanded you to care for her as well. So that's on the guy's side, just kind of biblical um, roles that are given to the husband. On the other side of the uh, diagram are some of the roles that are given to a wife, and they include follow. We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at the idea that she should be her husband's biggest fan. That's also in today's text, that she's supposed to live with him in a respectable way. And then the third one, finish, that's taken from Genesis 2, the idea of being a helper. And those are the roles that God has assigned to the husband and the wife in marriage, but hopefully the illustration also explains the why that those roles are there. And I would just say this, men and women are different. We're driven by different things. I don't have the time to develop it all this morning, but men tend to be wired for significance. We want to be thought of as being people that achieve something, that we're head and shoulders above our peers by the people in our lives that are important to us. Sometimes that's career-based. It can be based on other things. We're, we're driven by significance. Women tend to be driven more by security. And the point of the marriage wheel is to say this. When a husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church, he's leading his wife as, an, as the head, like Christ is the head of the church. When he's taking the time to learn his wife, well, when he's doing those things, it makes his wife secure. When, when the wife is secure... She's more likely to be her husband's biggest fan. She's more likely to be willing to follow his leadership. She's more likely to be his helper. When a wife is her husband's biggest fan and his helper in following his leadership, that makes the man feel more significant. And when the man feels more significant, it's easier for him to love, lead, and learn his wife. And on and on the wheel spins. That's a picture of oneness in a marriage, how God designed it, the roles that he gave, and why he gave them. Now, very, very important in the middle of that diagram is that big word, God. And just as a reminder, we can't lose this, that men, your significance comes from your identity in Christ. Wives, ultimately, your security comes from, from God, not your husband. Don't place on your spouse something that they weren't created and designed to bear. Ultimately, God needs to be in the center of this thing, but as it relates to the most intimate, important relationship that God established for humans to experience, the husband and the wives are given roles that feed their basic needs. Now, the problem with this is life. And as life rolls on, and hopefully you can see this in the chart, we, the, the wheel tends to hit some nails, and it can slow down, and it can lose traction, and it can stop. And I would even argue, if the husband and wife are in rebellion to their roles, it can actually spin backwards. And so the heart behind this book that Kristen and I did, please, I'm not hawking books, I promise. There's some in the back, if you want more details on this, they're free, take one. If we run out, we'll order more. The reason that we wrote the book, quite honestly, we didn't even want to describe a theology of marriage. What we wanted to do was help hurting marriages. This was born out of what we were experiencing in the counseling room with couples that we were counseling in our church and in other churches. So the book is filled with things like how to get communication going again in your marriage, how to reestablish sex and intimacy if you're struggling in those areas, how to forgive, how to reestablish trust when trust is broken. The heart of all of this was to help hurting marriages. And please hear me, even as I preach this morning, that's my heart this morning. Because there are marriages in this room that are less than thriving. Some are surviving. 
Some are really struggling. And the heart today is that we have some hope that when we go to God's word and we look back to how the designer designed marriage to operate, that maybe if we get back to the things that he called us to, we can experience some healing. We can experience revival in our marriages. And as we go to Ephesians 5 this morning, I would say this. We're going to look in this passage that's in front of us this morning at the most difficult command that's given to the wife and the most difficult command that's given to the husband. And I would just like to say this straight out. Um, easy to talk about these things in this room. You start to say the things that I'm about to say outside the walls of a church. You speak them into culture. They're not even, it's not even controversial. It's just completely dismissed. The counsel that we'll see Paul gives in Ephesians 5 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you take this out into the community, it is viewed as archaic, outdated, misogynistic. Like, get that away from me. Absolutely rejected by our culture. I would say the only place that it's controversial is in the church. Denominations are wrestling. Churches are wrestling. Church congregants are wrestling with the idea how did God design marriage? What do we do with same-sex marriages and attractions? These are the things that are dividing denominations and dividing churches today. So it's not controversial out in our culture. It's just rejected there. It's controversial in the church. But I would argue all day that as I open God's word to Ephesians 5, there's nothing controversial in Scripture about God's design for marriage taught in this passage. I can take you back into Genesis. We're going to spend some time there. What is controversial in the community and in our churches is not controversial in God's Word. So the objective today is simply this. We're going to open God's Word to Ephesians 5, look at what it says without apology, and try to apply some timeless truth to our truthless times. You guys okay with that? Okay, here's the big idea this morning. It's simply this. Your second marriage cannot thrive until your first marriage is settled. Your second marriage cannot thrive until your first marriage is settled. Hopefully, I will explain what that means over the course of the next 30 minutes, okay? Before we jump into Ephesians 5, just some background real quickly. God's design for marriage. I'm going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Pre-sin, pre-fall, God's design for marriage. Let me point out three things. Here's the first, companionship. Genesis 2.18 says... Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, big takeaway from Genesis 2.18, men need help. See it right there in the text? Okay, men need help. And I got to tell you, there's some church baggage around this word helper. It doesn't mean that the wife does all the domestic chores. It doesn't mean that she's lesser in any way. As a matter of fact, if you look at the use of that word helper throughout the Old Testament, it might surprise you what it means. That word is used 21 times in the Old Testament. 16 times out of the 21, it refers to God. It's interesting, Psalm 121, it says, I will lift up my eyes to the hill. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The way that I would define that word is it's to come alongside and to make stronger. It implies that the helper has the power and resources that the one needing help doesn't have. 
God designed marriage for companionship. There is something in the relationship between husband and wife that makes both of them stronger, more equipped to do the things that God has called them to do. And remember this idea of companionship and helper pre-fall. It's interesting to me. Here's the second thing. Marriage was designed for intimacy. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Okay, uh, obviously this refers to sexual intimacy, but I think it's way more than that. I think there's a longing in each of us to be in a deep relationship where we are known and fully still loved. Fully known. And, and, and we live in such an advanced society with technology where we're so interconnected with other people, not just in our own area or in our own community, but around the world. And I would argue it's not helping us develop intimate relationships. We got a thousand Facebook friends and nobody knows us. We're designed for intimacy. And then here's a third thing. It's from Genesis 1, 27 and 28. It's the idea of fruitfulness. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth and subdue it. And I'm going to make an argument here. Men and women are not the same. I feel like I'm an expert in this. I've been married for 38 years to a woman, my wife, Kristen. I have four daughters, six granddaughters. They don't think anything like I think. They're different. And that seems so obvious, but I think we've lost sight of that in our culture today. And by the way, this is a new phenomenon in human history. Throughout the annals of human history, men and women have been viewed as very different, distinct differences. This is new in the last 10 years, in the last 20 years. It's interesting, I went back and did some research. Back in 1992, a guy by the name of John Gray wrote a book, and the name of the book was this, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And it was a study of the differences, not just nurture in the way we treat boys and girls differently from a young age, but also their very nature, their tendencies, that you see differences all the way from the time of birth. And so he wrote this book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, or from Venus, describing the differences between the two genders. CNN Magazine at the end of the decade in 1999 would say that this is one of the most influential nonfiction books of the decade, okay? Describing the differences. 20 years later, we're trying to homogenize gender. This week, maybe some of you followed it on the news. It's shocking to me that there is strong debate on both sides of the argument that in Florida, whether gender, not transgender, just gender, sex education should be happening in grades kindergarten through third grade. Like, our world is upside down on this. And the Bible is clear. God made them male and female. They are distinctly different. And this idea of homogenizing gender, making them the same, when we do it, what is lost is the beauty of both what is male and what is female. I'm telling you, I think history is going to prove us wrong on this. This is a new phenomena. We're designed for fruitfulness. 
One of the purposes of marriage is fruitfulness, to propel humanity forward, to have kids. It's interesting, that's those reasons for marriage from the designer from the first two chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 3, sin enters the equation. And let me just give you three impacts that sin immediately has on marriage. You can see them in the text. In Genesis 3, 8, it says this, uh, And when they heard the sound of God, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you you were naked? I, that, that, that's kind of funny to me. Immediately after sin, they feel shame. They're hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord because they're naked. And God's like, Who told you you were naked? Like, like there's a self-interest, there's a self-awareness. Guilt and shame have now entered the equation and that self-interest, that wanting what is in our best interest is going to impact our marriage relationships. Here's the second thing. Right after he says, who told you you were naked? He, said, he asked this question, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman who you gave uh, me to be with, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So, Self-interest, the second thing we see is blame. You see how quickly that happened? Man, we were so quick on the trigger with the blame game. Hey, did you eat of the fruit? Yeah, she gave it to me. And to make it worse, you gave me she. Like, blaming the wife, blaming God. Do, do me a favor, put that marriage wheel back up for a second. One of the things that happens when we introduce this illustration into a counseling construct, if the marriage is struggling... It's like nuclear power. It can be for good and it can just blow everything up. It blows the marriage up when the husband looks at the wife's roles and grades her on how she's doing and when the wife looks at the husband's roles and grades him on how he's doing. I know it's not going to go well when I'm sitting in a counseling room and the wife goes, I would follow him if he could lead. Not a great sign. Or the husband looks at me and says, you try to lead that one. Like, when, when, when we're critiquing across the box at what our spouse is supposed to do or not do, I'll tell you what, this thing, it's weaponry, man. It's nuclear. It can blow up a marriage. And I would tell you, stay in your box. And we're going to look at this as we get into the text. You have zero capacity to change your spouse. Only the Lord can do that. And it's the Lord's desire to use you in the process of changing your spouse when you commit to do the things that he's called you to do in obedience to him, irregardless of what your spouse does. When we see a couple take that attitude towards the difficulties in their marriage, you will be surprised at the transformation that can happen in that relationship. Third thing we see that sin does that affects the marriage is it creates wars in the roles that are given to husbands and to wives. Genesis 3.16 is part of the curse to the woman. We read this, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To the man it says this in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So what happens is conflict is entered, introduced into the marriage relationship because of sin. 
The wife's going to struggle to follow the leadership of her husband, and the husband is going to struggle to lead his wife because life is hard, toil is difficult, there's distractions outside the marriage and about the home, and his heart is going to tend toward the neglect of his marriage relationship. So God designed marriage. Marriage is corrupted because of sin. And now we jump into our text. There's no like easy way to jump in. You're just not allowed to ramp into this section of scripture. Look at Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. If you were to read those verses, if you were to look for a one-word summary of what a wife is called to do, she's called to submit. Now, I'm just going to be really open and transparent here. Not really comfortable as a dude telling wives that their godly role is to submit. When Kristen and I have taught this in marriage conferences, she teaches this section. I'm like, you can have that one. I think submission in this text is the most difficult command that is given either to the husband or to the wife. Submission is difficult in a world and in a culture that says, I should be able to get whatever I want and my needs are the ultimate thing, that, <clears throat> that I am the center of my universe. Submission is hard. Three things, just as reminders. All of us in this room are called to submit. But, well, where do you see that? We'll go one verse higher than verse 22 to verse 21. <clears throat> Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So all of us are called to submit to one another. And then what happens in this section in the passage that we're going to look at next week in the start of chapter 6, all of us are in different roles. Many of those roles call for us to submit. It can be government to citizen. It can be um, worker to boss. It can be child to parent. It can be in the marriage context. But all of us are called to be willing to submit to one another. We're all called to submit. And here's one of the things that I've learned over the last two years. Do you guys realize this is the two-year anniversary of when our church first shut down because of a pandemic? Two years ago this week, I was flying back from Arizona. We'd snuck down to see some spring, uh, spring training games. And the Wednesday game, there was like nobody in the stands and we couldn't figure out why. And by Thursday night, our president was on the air. We were starting to hear these words, COVID and pandemic. And all of baseball was canceled the next day. And that Thursday, we had to make a decision, do we cancel ladies' Bible study? And we did. And we contacted some of the other churches and said, hey, listen, we're probably going to be canceling our weekend services. And they were like, you're crazy. Two days later on Friday, all the schools shut down and society shut down. That was two years ago. Do you know what my big takeaway is from the last two years of the pandemic? Church people don't like to submit. It's that easy. We don't like it. We don't like to be told what to do, especially when what we're being told to do doesn't make any logical sense. We don't like to submit. Please understand, submission implies that there's conflict, that there's disagreement. If we agreed, that's not submission, that's consensus. We're not great at submission. Now, in the context of marriage, here's another thing that I don't want to miss. Submission does not mean that the wife is less valuable, less intelligent, or a less capable leader. That's baggage. It's not true. It doesn't mean that men in general <clears throat> rule over women. Wives, submit to your husband. It's specific in your role to your husband. 
and submission should never be used as a justification or an excuse for abuse or mistreatment. Ladies, if your husband is mistreating you, call the cops. There's been a breakdown in your marital structure, and God's placed other structures to deal with that breakdown. Submission never allows for abuse in marriage. And here's just the third thing, just so we don't lose sight of this. Jesus never calls us to do something he wasn't willing to model an example for us. Jesus lived a life of submission. We can read about it when he's in the garden, not my will, but your will, to the heavenly Father. The Trinity, the Godhead, all equal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but each submitting to others in the Godhead. The Son submits to the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Son. Jesus never calls us to do what he's not willing to model. Here's what submission means. The Greek word there is hupotasso. It was a military term. It was to place yourself in rank under. Simply stated, and I'll develop this when I talk to the men, you're yielding your tie-breaking authority to your husband. Do you know what makes submission hard? Husbands. Here's what I've found. I think this is true probably of every husband in this room. Ladies, I would say this. Every one of you is married to a man who is what I would call an occasional idiot. Every one of you, an occasional idiot. The only difference is what is the occasion and how often. Maybe for some of you, you're married to some guy where he's an idiot like once or twice a year. Maybe it's once or twice a week. Maybe his occasion is like the sunrise. It's every day. Like, like here's the problem. I can't make an argument for you on behalf of your husband of why you should submit to him, which is why the text doesn't make that argument. Wives, submit to your husbands. What does it say next? His to the Lord. Hey, your husband is not worthy of your submission. Your Savior is. Your Savior is. It's interesting. In studying for this this week, I, I went back and looked Old Testament, New Testament at this analogy that is developed throughout Scripture, both old and new, that we are the bride of Christ. Now, now, dudes in the room, we don't like to picture ourselves in an analogy as the bride. That's a little difficult for us, but that's what Scripture teaches, that we're all in a role, that, that the followers of God, God's people, are the bride of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in this text, if I were just to walk you through this and next week's text alone, verse 22, wives submit to your husband as to the Lord. Verse 24, as Christ submits to the church, so wives should submit in everything. Verse 25, <clears throat> husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 29, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Christ, the thing that our eyes are set on. Next week, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Verse 5 of chapter 6, bond, uh, bond servants, obey your earthly masters, end of that verse, as you would in Christ. And what's happening in this text is really quite interesting. It says in Ephesians 5 verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Look at verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what just happened. When God established marriage in Genesis for companionship, for intimacy, for fruitfulness, Paul is saying there's another reason why he established marriage. It's been a mystery, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's being made known now. 
The fourth reason for your marriage is the gospel. There is something going on in this union between husband and wife that is a witness and a testimony and a reflection of the gospel. Not just for those outside that look at your marriage and say, man, there's something different about that couple. I want a relationship like they have. Not just a witness, but it's also a witness to the participants, to the husband and the wife. You are growing in your knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ when you follow the roles and live under God's guidance of how your marriage is supposed to work. This thing we're learning about Jesus Christ. Christ, our relationship to him, that's our first marriage. And your second marriage will never thrive until your first marriage is settled. And the question that I would ask, do you view your relationship with Christ that way? Is he the center of everything? In every relationship, pointed back, do this because of Christ. Wives, even if your husband doesn't walk with the Lord, you're called to submit to him, not because of him, but because of your Savior. You're like, be careful when you say that. you have something to back that? Yeah, I do. 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, there it is, they may be won without a word by, your, by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. There are wives in this room who are desperately praying that God does a work in their husband's life. They find themselves in a situation where they're not following a man who's following Jesus. I get it. I've been in the room. I've sat with the couples. And here's what I would tell you. Don't get in the way of what God wants to accomplish in your husband's life. You will not change your husband by your unyielding, unsubmissive spirit. Do what God's called you to do and let him use you as the vehicle in which... He will work on your husband. God alone can change your husband's heart. Just, I'm going to move to the husbands real quick, but before I do that, let me talk to the single ladies. All the single ladies, now I sound like Beyonce. Um, <laughs> to the single women in the room, choose wisely who you marry. Like, like conceptually, you understand that when we're dating you, we're on our, our absolute best behavior. That's not the real us. We're in pursuit, and then we're going to marry you, and then we're going to let our guard down and show you what we're really like. Listen, the guy that you're dating is not going to get better once you marry him outside a work of God, okay? Trust the Lord. Don't compromise. If you're going to have to yield to a husband, make sure that that man is yielded to Jesus Christ. And I would just caution you, there's a loneliness that is more lonely than being alone. And whatever that loneliness is that you're experiencing now and that longing to have a partner to share life with is way better than the loneliness you will find when you marry a man who refuses to love you and lead you as Christ loved the church. Be careful. Choose wisely. Okay, now to husbands, but I'm not going to get off the submission thing for a minute. Please hear me. Husbands, the submission of your wife is never demanded of your wife. She willingly gives it to you. Nowhere in Scripture are you allowed to demand that your wife submits. If you're at home playing the submit woman card, you don't have that card. And even if you did, by the time you play that, you've already lost. You 
earn your wife's submission by loving her and leading her and learning her as Christ exampled in the way that he loved, led, and cared for us. Submission is hard. I've already said that. Let me have you, man, here's how you can help your wife. Lose every little battle. Lose all the little ones. It, it, it doesn't matter if you order Chinese or have pizza tonight. It really doesn't make a difference in the grand scheme of things. Don't go to war on that. It, it's funny. This seems to happen every time I preach on marriage, but I run into an illustration from the week before. Friday, I went to an elders meeting. We had an elders meeting at 6.30 in the morning. Came back from that. I had to run to a haircut. As I was running to the haircut, I just swung into the house, grabbed some cash so that I could pay to get my haircut, and then headed out the door, and I go to Kristen, what are you up to this morning? She goes, well, I was going to go get my nails done with, or my toes done with my daughter, Catherine, but she's going out to breakfast with a friend. I said, you want me to go with you? She said, sure. I'll wait for you. I get in the car. I just got like a couple blocks to drive to the barber, and I'm thinking, she knew I was sarcastic, right? Like, like 38 years of marriage, I've never asked to get my toes done. Okay, I don't get pedicures. Like, no, that was sarcastic. I go get my hair cut. I come home. Guess what's waiting for me? My wife. Let's go get our toes done. <laughs> Second pedicure of my life. My first one was eight years ago when I was teaching this same passage. <laughs> Kristen walked into church after ladies' Bible study. She goes, hey, will you get your hey, can we go get our toes done? Come with me. I'm like, no way. I'll only go if you can get Cal to go. Cal looks at me and goes, I'll only go if Chris Moeller goes. Chris Moeller goes, sure, I'll go. It was his fault the last time. Okay? I want to go to war Friday morning. I'm not going to get my toes done, but that's not what I did. I said, okay. And we drove to the place, and um, I made no eye contact with anybody in that shop. I... Uh, I wore a hoodie. I was on my phone the whole time. I survived it, okay? Lose the small battles. And can I give you another just piece of advice? Because you know submission's hard. You're, you work in a workplace. You have a boss. You know how difficult it can be. Listen, if you're the tiebreaker, no ties. Kristen and I sat Friday morning. I'm like, what are the difficult decisions that you've really had to submit to that you didn't want to over the course of our marriage? And she can point to little things. And, but major things, we can't name four. They're just not there. You know, like number of kids, where we're going to leave, job changes, like all of that. We, I, I fight for consensus. I don't make those decisions because deep in my heart, I believe that God's given her to me as a helper. That she's my warning system. She's often the brakes. She's more cautious than I am. I can be right at the wrong time. God gave her to me as a helper. I value that. I actually believe that if I can't convince her that the direction that I want to go is the right direction, then I probably often have to rethink it or at least continue to push until she's on the same page. So like, as we're looking back over 38 years of marriage, like, what are the things that we've disagreed on where I've had to take leadership and she's like, I really don't want this? Dogs. We've had dogs. She doesn't love them. Okay? Cal, uh, freshman year of high school, he went to Grand Haven Public. She would have liked to seen him go to WMC. He would end up graduating from there. He would make that choice on his own. She answered, I, I believe God answered that prayer for her. But, you know, it's one of these things where two, three, 
It's not how we lead. Well, why would I do that? Because I love my wife. Now, husbands, read it in the text. Husbands, love your wife. For the guys here, we're going to go really, really slow through these four words, okay? Husband, that means you have a wife. Clear on that? Love, okay? In the Greek, there's three words for love. One of them is eros. That means physical or erotic love. That's not this word. Lest any of you be like, well, you know what the preacher said? It doesn't say husbands make love to your wife. Don't add that word, okay? Well, we're just not supposed to be here. So the word's supposed to do it also. No, you don't get to play that card. Not from this text, okay? Husbands love. It's not phileo, their brotherly love. The word is agape. It is a self-sacrificing, you before me, giving love. That's what the text says, that we're to love our wives. Get this? Because Christ loved the church. I would argue that loving your wife as Christ calls the love the church is a greater call to selflessness than submission. Sadly, most men's don't love the woman that they're with. They love themselves and the woman is a means to an end. If we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, well, what does that mean? Well, Christ loved us when we were unlovable, while we were still enemies, is what the text said. Christ demonstrated his love by dying for us. He took our sin. He bore our shame. He went to the cross. He was battered. He was bruised on our behalf. I would argue that in the course of all of human history, there has never been on display at any time in any place an act of human sacrifice that equals the cross of Jesus Christ and what he demonstrated in revealing his love for us. And men, that is how you are called to love your wife. I'll look at guys in premarital counseling. I'll say, hey, you know those groomsmen that you're going to line up? If those guys are competing for your attention between you and your wife, get new friends. Your wife is your priority. Verse 22 and 23, look what it says. It says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 23, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and himself as Savior. Men, you have to take responsibility as the leader in the home that you will give an account, that you set the temperature in your home. You're a leader, sure, but you love as Christ loved the church. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Men, if you think leadership and headship in your home is that you get to wear the crown, please recognize that the text is clear. The crown that you wear is a crown of thorns. You give yourself to this relationship. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So, so how do you cherish and nourish your wife if that's what the command is? Hey, here's a clue. Be there. Be there. Women need to be cherished. They're different than us. They're more relational than us. They pick, up, they pick up nuances that I just don't see as a man. My wife will see things 
in my kids or in my grandkids. They'll be like, hey, did you notice this? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. They're more in tune to those relational triggers. They tend to be more emotional. They bear the weight of broken relationships different than us. In our country, 75% of antidepressants are prescribed to women. And I don't mean that to diss on women. You guys bear the weight of all the brokenness of all of the relationships in your life differently than we do. You bear the weight of marriages not being all that they're called to be and the difficulties with kids. You bear all of that differently from us. It weighs on your soul. We're just, we're just moving around couch, kitch, or, uh, couch cushions trying to find the remote. That's what we're doing. It's different. And men, you will not stumble into intimacy on your wife if you're not intentional about it. I've never met the guy who was like, yeah, got up this morning, went golfing, played 18, came home, made myself a sandwich, sat down to watch uh, March Madness on the couch, and the next thing I knew, I was in this deep, loving, intimate, cherishing relationship moment with my wife. Never works that way. It's got to be a priority. Why would it be a priority? Because someday you'll stand before the Lord and you'll give an account. And the first question he's going to ask you as it relates to stewardship is, tell me about your relationship with your wife. Okay, how in the world are wives supposed to submit to flawed husbands? How in the world are men supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church? For both of you, here's the command. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Eyes fixed on Jesus. Without that, I don't know how to help you through those difficult seasons in your marriage. When your eyes are fixed on Jesus and you're doing what he's called you to do, independent of what your spouse is going to do, don't think God's not going to bless that. Don't think that God's not going to bless you. We've seen it over and over again. Last night, I looked around the room. Kristen made the comment when we got home, do you see how many men had their arms around their wives? I'm like, is that a good sign or a bad sign? Is that a sign of affection or is that a husband putting his arm around his wife going, hold it together till we get home? I know this is difficult. And if you're in a marriage, like many marriages in this room, that's less than thriving, that maybe is barely surviving. Consider this passage. Grab a book on the way out. Come talk to a pastor. There's something bigger at stake here than just the fullness of that marital relationship. Your relationship with the Lord is being affected. Your testimony for the Lord is being affected and your understanding and appreciation of the gospel is being affected when our marriages are less than God intended them to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, simple, incredibly difficult truth. Father, I thank you that we can go all the way back to Genesis and all the way into the New Testament and you never change. And in a culture that thinks it always knows better than what your word says, Father, we would just proclaim that you are good and that you know better than what we think is right. Father, teach us to trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.